Bible. So we'll be starting from verse 13. I'd invite you to follow along as I read. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and appointed him in the midst of his brothers. Anointed him, pardon me, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, sent them by David his son to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly. He became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our title this morning is Usefulness in Following the Spirit. Main idea, the main point that the author is showing us in this passage is a contrast between the one who has been acting as king, though he has recently been removed from that official position, and the one who has been anointed as king, though he is not yet sitting on the throne. For a little bit of background, if you remember from chapter 15, Saul was commissioned to go to war with the Amalekites and to wipe them out completely. Saul instead chose to keep the best of the livestock, to keep King Agag, and to remain with them there until Samuel returned so that they might be offered as a sacrifice. Well, Samuel's big message in chapter 15 was obedience is better than sacrifice, than the things that we come up with on our own to try to please the Lord. Samuel's not just a stern warning, but in fact his... Judgment, the judgment that the Lord had passed on Saul, was delivered through Samuel. And he said, since you have rejected the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from the kingship. And so it fits for us as we look at verse 14 to see that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, it'll be important for us in a moment to consider that that nature of the departing and that nature, that the matter of the harmful spirit from the Lord tormenting him. And it'll be helpful for us to consider, again, the end of verse 13. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David has been anointed, and in confirmation of that anointing with oil, that's all Samuel did, was just poured oil over his head. The spirit of God then rushed upon David. And you might notice something unique. Though rushing 
the rushing of the Spirit on someone in the Old Testament is fairly common, as we've seen in the book of Judges and already with Saul in 1 Samuel. Something is added here with David. David is unique in his experience of the Spirit of God in that the Spirit rushed upon David from that day forward. The author is giving us this picture of David living in relationship with God moment to moment by his presence. Whereas with Saul, his experience of the Spirit was a rushing from one moment to another moment later on for a specific task. So there's already a contrast there. And I think that that contrast is important for us as we consider the instatement of Saul in the first place. If you remember, Israel had asked for a king. And their qualification was, we want a king like all the nations have. And so God chose Saul in order to answer that exact request. Saul then proved to be a king just like the rest of the nations, primarily in regards to his ultimate downfall of rejecting the word of the Lord, which is, of course, at the core of the character of any worldly authority as well, right? An authority in the world that would say, I'm in charge, is going to start by saying, I'm going to reject the word of the one who is truly in authority. And Saul proved himself to be just what Israel asked for. In mentioning that he was going to remove Saul then, he told Saul through Samuel that the Lord has picked someone better than you, a man after God's own heart, and thus we have David. Saul was the one that was asked for by the people, and he came as the sort of expected example. He was tall, he was handsome, he's a man of war. But David comes not as the one asked for by the people, but as the one asked for by God. And not really asked for, right? But rather chosen. If you'll remember, there was a quote that we used from John Woodhouse in chapter 13 in regards to this matter of being a man after God's own heart and that that speaks less about the character of that person or the qualifications of the individual himself and more about God's choosing of that person. Says Woodhouse, this is a way of saying that God has chosen this man according to his own will and purpose. And when God does that, he brings people into the unfolding work that is constantly unfolding through Scripture. So this is why David is then useful to God. He is useful because of the presence of God in his life. He's useful because having the presence of God in his life, he is now able to obey the will of the Lord and not seek his own plans or alternatives. See, like David, the people of God are not called to be just passive recipients only in relating to the Lord's plan. We are recipients, right? We can do nothing apart from Christ. If we do not have the grace of the Lord, there's no way to please Him. If we don't have faith, rather, the author of Hebrews tells us, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God and therefore to be useful to His plan. We are not meant to simply be passive recipients only. We are meant to act out in light of what we've received, namely the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of the Lord was suddenly absent from your life, as Saul has experienced in our passage this morning, what perceivable difference would there be? What would you be able to notice would change if suddenly the Spirit was gone? I think in a lot of my moments in life, 
I might not even be able to notice that the Spirit would be gone. Because the temptation in this world is to constantly be acting out according to the flesh, according to our old way of life, our old way of thinking. And so I wonder sometimes, when I'm caught up in my own agendas, caught up in my own plans, trying to be helpful to my own purpose, that if I experienced what Saul experienced, would I even be able to tell the difference? Part of why I ask that question is because when we see Saul suffering under this harmful spirit from the Lord, he doesn't seem to know what's going on. Not only does he miss that the Spirit of God has departed from him, that there is now a break in his relationship with the Lord, but he can't even discern the fact that there's a harmful spirit tormenting him. Now, this harmful spirit, it doesn't seem that the author is leading us to believe that the spirit is possessing him and, and you know controlling him and tormenting him moment by moment. If you look back to the end of our passage in verse 23, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, then David would sing and he would be refreshed. So this seems to be a sort of spiritual attack that is forming a pattern in Saul's life and is certainly in direct correlation to the fact that the Spirit of God has left him. Now, let's think in terms of ourselves here again for a moment and consider the fact that for Christians, the matter of the Spirit is far more like the experience of David in this passage than it is the experience of Saul anywhere else. In that, David again experiences the rushing of the Holy Spirit from that moment forward. There's a remaining of the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul teaches us that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is to be led by, to be controlled by, and not just for one particular task, but for all of life. And what that means, church, is so incredibly important because we're looking at David, we're looking at Saul, we're looking at kings of Israel. We're, we're on the precipice of chapter 17, one of the most exciting chapters in the whole Bible with David and Goliath. And it's very easy for us to think, I don't know if I can really be useful to God when I see these kinds of stories and their epic adventures and amazing impact on the people around them. I just don't know if, you know, raising my kid right now from day to day is really having an effect on anybody else or, or what I do in the office from Monday through Friday or making sure my grass is cut on Saturday afternoon. As I go through those regular everyday types of things, it may be that we're tempted to think that these things are small and insignificant. But if the Spirit of God is on us to fill us moment by moment for all of life, then there is not an insignificant moment in your life. How about that? That's kind of tough to swallow. Because in fact, I would like to have some insignificant moments in my life. I would like to know that there's a period of time where I could probably just relax a little bit and not worry so much about what the Spirit's doing. Let's not forget that within the commandment of God, we have a call to rest. We have a Sabbath commandment. Partially what we're doing right here is in obedience to that matter of Sabbath, that matter of resting. So we ought not think that because the Spirit is on us, because we are therefore useful to God, that we need to spend every single moment doing some dramatically effective thing for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Rather, the primary work of the Spirit is to transform us from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Christ, to make us more like Him in who we are. 
Because who you are is far more important than what you do. And what you do will come out of who you are, of course. Well, let's continue to our story here. We find David, as, as Tim mentioned last week, you know, Tim, David was the last choice for Samuel as he came to Jesse's house. He came to Jesse's house looking for the one that the Lord was to anoint, and David was the youngest one. He didn't even show up when all the sons were called out. It's kind of funny and ironic, isn't it? Samuel goes through and he sees all the tall ones, the strong ones, the impressive-looking sons of Jesse. And yet the Lord says, no, not any of these. And then we have David. David who now has the Spirit of God. And because of having the Spirit of God, he has everything that he needs. We're going to look at this passage in sort of three steps. In thinking about spirit-driven usefulness. Usefulness in following the Holy Spirit. So we're going to consider the beginning of spirit-driven usefulness. The direction of spirit-driven usefulness. And then lastly, the outcome of spirit-driven usefulness. So there's an outline in your bulletin if that would help you uh, map out where we are in our sermon this morning. Well, David's journey begins in verse 13. He's been chosen and anointed. He is a man after God's own heart because of the choosing of God. This matter of anointing, again, is, is simply the pouring on of oil over her head, but it has massive significance. Uh, this, this matter of anointing is associated with the word Messiah in the Old Testament, which we translate to Christ in the New Testament. So as you think about Jesus Christ, we're thinking Jesus, the anointed one. The one set aside for God's plan for a specific purpose. And David's even giving shadows of that here as he's being anointed. As he is in some ways becoming a Christ. So hear that indefinite article in front of that. He is not the Christ. He is not Jesus, the Son of God. But he is, in one sense, christened or anointed for the purposes of God here. Now, I'd like you to put yourself in David's shoes for a moment, too. Because he's young at this point. And, I mean, he was out tending the sheep, just doing the normal Tuesday-type stuff. And then Samuel shows up. Whether he knew who Samuel was or didn't, didn't really matter so much. There was a visitor that they had not expected. And he was talking about anointing the next king of Israel. Where are you in this moment of anointing? If you're David, if you're seeing things through his perspective, do you think, I'm shepherding the flock, I come back, I get anointed as king, and then I'm going back to the flock? Aren't you kind of anticipating something else now, right? Like, boy, this is the beginning of something really big. How could I possibly go back to the normal stuff? How could I possibly expect anything but something massive and wonderful about to happen? I don't know for sure if that's what David was thinking. Perhaps he was a much calmer person who could just say, all right, well, I'll just wait on God and see what he does. I don't really think that's true. If you've ever read the Psalms, David is a very emotional person, isn't he? He's very expressive about where he is, how he's feeling, what he thinks is right and wrong. So I imagine that David is at the very least wondering... What is this the beginning of? I am being anointed and set apart to be useful to God's plan. And he said it was to be the king of Israel. I'm just a kid. There is already a king too. He's a pretty lousy king. David has a long road before he goes to the crown, goes to the throne himself. 
I wonder as we think about David's long road that extends through the rest of the book of 1 Samuel into the beginning of 2 Samuel. I wonder what it looks like for us when we are in a waiting period. What does it look like for us to trust the Lord in that waiting period? It may be a matter of our job. It may be a matter of a ministry we're waiting for. It may be a matter of a relational issue that just seems unresolved and we're simply waiting for the Lord to do something here. Or or perhaps we're even yielding to the Spirit and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do in this relationship? And, And the Lord seems rather silent in His Word and in your moments of prayer. What does it look like to trust him? What does it look like to seek the usefulness of the moment? To recognize that that thing that you'd really like to get to, even if you don't know what it is, isn't quite here yet. What does it look like to be useful before your new job, before a new college semester, before a baby is born? We aren't good at waiting. And I say that for all of us. Because I think sometimes we characterize ourselves or others characterize themselves as being bad at waiting. No one's good at waiting, right? Let's be honest. It's the same thing with the matter of control. You say, well, this is a very controlling person. You can say, well, maybe there's an expression of that that's, that's stronger. But the truth is, is we're all controlling people, aren't we? I mean, who would really like to say, Lord, here's my life. Take it and let it be consecrated to you. Set apart for your purposes and your plans. And I'll just be quiet and follow along with every detail. None of us do that. Let's be honest. Again, there's a danger in us singing those kinds of songs. But we continue to sing them because that's where our hearts need to be. The beginning of spirit-driven usefulness is found as we wait in the presence of God as we draw near to him in the waiting. As we draw near to him, then we see the usefulness that he has for us moment to moment. And a lot of times that usefulness is unexpected, as we're going to see with David's life. So let's continue. That's the beginning of spirit-driven usefulness. Now let's look at the direction of spirit-driven usefulness. Because here we find Saul's big problem. And thinking about Saul's problem with his tormenting spirit, the, the harm that's being brought on him at different times throughout his day or his week, perhaps, Um, I immediately thought back to um, FDR, President Roosevelt, um, and his struggle with polio. You can remember those images of him standing to address the nation. And, and, you know, I I just kind of went through a bunch of images this past week and seeing him, you know, holding on to someone's arm, holding his cane, like off to the side. There was a matter of importance that we see our president as someone strong and able and of sound mind. That's all I'm going to say. Because the image of the leader is so incredibly important. And so, you put yourself in David's shoes, put yourself in Saul's shoes now, consider where he is, that at any moment, he could go from having a completely sound mind to being under extreme distress over a spiritual force in his life that he has no control over whatsoever. It is a serious problem, and Saul is stuck. Saul's usefulness has already been completely lost as of chapter 15, verse 2. Because of Saul's repeated disobedience and wandering from the clear direction that God has given him, God has basically had to say, you're not useful to me anymore for my plan. You're sure useful for your own plans. But the king of Israel is meant to be representing the character of God. 
and to be advancing the plan of God. And Saul is not doing that. His usefulness is gone. The Spirit has then departed. This might bring to mind Psalm 51, which was what David wrote after his um, egregious sin with Bathsheba and with her husband and all the cover-up and all of that. And one of the things he prays is, take not your Holy Spirit from me. You almost wonder if when he wrote those words, he was thinking about Saul, thinking about the first time that he met Saul, having the Spirit departed in a place where the Spirit was absolutely necessary And for us, church, the Spirit is absolutely necessary for the Christian life. That is not an ecstatic expression of emotionalism, but it is in the quiet, steady, sure work of transforming us into the image of Christ and empowering us for the ministry that God has for us, bringing us into God's plan. And if that's all true, Saul is unable to participate because of where he is now. He's dealing with a God-appointed spirit of harm that he couldn't see. I don't know if you have a category in your mind for this matter. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, we have a different understanding of evil in some cases. In that, there are instances where it says that God sends an evil or a harmful spirit on someone. Does that mean that God is sinning or that God is doing something evil? Well, no, certainly not. If we go back to Job, you know, one of the first things Job says, one of the most profound things he says Shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? And he says that right after his family's wiped out and his crops, and, and eventually he loses everything. And he says, we should receive whatever the Lord has for us. He's in control, and nothing happens apart from his purview and his superintendence. As a comfort for us in times of sorrow, a comfort for us when, when harm is coming into our lives. And church, it is a tragic thing that Saul cannot see it. It ought to have been that Saul should have said, I need help. I need spiritual help. Who can help me with this matter? Rather, instead, it is his young servant who says, you have a harmful spirit, sir. You need someone to help you with this. We talked in the past about Saul's crusades and his campaigns against his enemies, and particularly that moment where he had said, no one eats until I'm avenged on my enemies, until we are done with this, for my glory. And his own son, who hadn't heard him say that, went and he ate some honey while they were traveling through the woods. Saul's heart is so darkened by his own pride in that moment that he says, yes, I said, I said, woe to the man who does this, so let's bring judgment on even my own son. My soldiers wouldn't let him do it. Saul's heart was darkened then. It is seemingly even dark, more darkened now as he can't see what's going on. Again, he needed his servants to reveal the issue and his servants to sort of be ready to close the doors and to send away other appointments when Saul was going to go through this torment. And as they could kind of see it starting on his face, they could say, all right, everybody out. The king needs to be left alone for a while. Can you imagine trying to keep up appearances for him in that case? What warning is there from Saul's life here? Maybe that living among God's people and yet striving to do the works, the Lord's work apart from the Lord's presence is the very picture of unusefulness. And that that unusefulness is what we as Christians ought to, in one sense I should say, fear. That we should be concerned that we don't find ourselves in such a moment of unusefulness because of a distance 
between us and the presence of God. We've seen Saul's big problem under the direction of the Spirit-driven usefulness. Now we're seeing David's detour. So, again, put yourself in David's shoes here, and you can imagine one of the servants coming again to David's house and saying, where's David? And he goes, oh, I'm here. I'm, I'm ready to be the one that people are coming to see, right? And the servant comes in and says, hey, Saul needs you in Gibeah. You know, the, the servant isn't going to get there and be like, he's going through a really hard time. You know, there's a harmful spirit and all this is going on. No, he doesn't want to run the risk of anybody hearing this news, right? And you know it. You've seen the movies. When people are summoned by a king, they aren't told why they're summoned. They're told, get there now. So David is coming to Gibeah, coming to where Saul's throne is. And, and you almost wonder if David's thinking like, is this the time? Is this the direction now? Is this, am I going to be where God wants me to be? And the answer is absolutely yes. But he's not going to the throne. He's not going to become king. You see, when they were thinking about how to help Saul, they knew they needed somebody who could play music. In the Old Testament, music is, is this, in one sense, a deeply connected activity to the spiritual realm. It's very mysterious and interesting. But in one sense, we kind of experience that today, don't we? In that, as we lift up our voices, as we sing songs to the Lord and about the Lord, we are, in one sense, connected to God a little more deeply than we were before. A lot of that can be very easily distinguished as emotionalism, and that's what we have to be really careful about on Sunday mornings. But there was certainly a sense during this time that what you needed was somebody who could play music. So Saul says, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answers, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He's skillful in playing. He's a good musician. He's a man of valor. He's a man of war. He's prudent in speech, a man of good presence. And most importantly, the Lord is with him. Now, this is a mysterious thing. Why would anybody know just some nobody named David at this point? Uh, Some scholars actually believe that chapter 16 and 17 are not chronological. That is to say that it's very possible that David has already fought Goliath at this point. And that the reason for the author's ordering of these things is more thematic than actual timeline A, then B, then C, then D. Either way is perfectly acceptable. There's no harm done to the overall message of the word in this at all. But there's something notable about David. Not just something, but many things. David's resume is impressive. Music, an honorable man. He's a man of war. He's a good communicator. He's good company. But most importantly, the Lord is with him. And because of that, unexpectedly now, as the Spirit works, David's character and abilities are used to serve his rival. Isn't it just like God to do something like this? To take someone and say, I'm going to put you in this position. And then send him off, first thing, to go and serve the person who is currently in the position that was already promised to this first individual. It is ironic. It is unexpected. It is surprising. And yet it is how God works. And David seems to flow right along with this. I'm sure there was a big question mark in his mind about it. But he went forward with it. He saw the opportunity. He took it in many ways, I believe, as an opportunity to grow and to understand, you know, court life and and kingship and those kinds of things. It makes perfect sense when you consider that David is getting, in one sense, an internship with Saul. Because he's so effective at soothing the spiritual distress of his rival that Saul, his rival, brings him into his service as his armor bearer. 
Do you remember Jonathan and his armor bearer? When Jonathan said, hey, let's go up and take these Philistines, just you and me. Let's go. It's, it may be that the Lord gives us victory. Let's see what happens, right? And his armor bearer says, do whatever in your heart. I am with you, heart and soul. Let's go. Your armor bearer position is one who needs to be in, in one sense, chorus and in harmony with the person for whom he's carrying the armor. And so David's position as armor bearer is not just a, hey, we need an armor bearer. Maybe you'd be pretty good at this. No, Saul is handpicking David and saying, I need him. I don't think anybody else can be or do this job as well as David can. Saul is ironically seeing what God had been doing and is doing in preparing David for something bigger and thus moving him along on that path. I mean, not that, you know, you go to the promotion and are like, well, I'm armor bearer, but next year I'm hoping to become king, right? But in one sense, he's getting closer and closer to that promise that was made, that plan that was revealed to him through some very unexpected means. Let's consider the outcome of spirit-driven usefulness. Verses 21 through 23, we see again, David has become the armor bearer. We see that Saul loved David. Now, this is a very uh, royal and political term that's being used here, um, but there's certainly a deep affection. There's, there's a sense that who David is is someone I can trust, someone who will follow me, someone who will do exactly what I say and be useful to my plans. And again, the irony of all of that is that though David is seeing and going, I'm just helping Saul out. Perhaps he's thinking that. I know I'd be thinking it. What's going on here? I'm, I'm, I'm here in one sense to make Saul a better king. I thought I was supposed to be the king. It seems on the surface that he's just serving Saul's purposes, but he's actually serving God's deeper purposes. Because what do we know of the character of God? In the turmoil that Saul is experiencing, that was driven by the spirit, the, the spirit whom God sent to harm him, God has now also sent someone to heal him. He sent David. Amazingly, though Saul has been rejected for rejecting the word of the Lord, the Lord is now offering mercy to Saul through sending David. Saul moves David to Gibeah permanently. David refreshes Saul whenever he's attacked by the harmful spirit. And in Saul's perspective, things are going really well. But I wonder if David is still feeling like he's on a detour. And how often we experience detours as we are striving to follow God's will. And it seems things aren't going the way we'd like. We'd like to get to this point, but on our way, we're drifting off this way. I I don't mean to just talk about myself here, but this is pertinent for me in that uh, I went to Bible school, graduated Bible school, and I was ready to be here, really, is where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in the pulpit. And yet, one of the first things that happened after I graduated was I started teaching middle school. That is not what I went to school for. That was not what I had intended to do whatsoever. And yet, in the midst of that, what God taught me that was so foundational for my spiritual life was understanding that as God equips us and he prepares us for something in the future, he doesn't guarantee that that thing that we so have our heart set on is the thing that he's bringing us to. But that the thing that he, the, the things that he's giving us, the way he's equipping us are going to be perfect for where he is bringing us in an unexpected and surprising kind of way. 
I think that's what David is experiencing here and what we need to consider as well. Because it may be that we're more preoccupied with the detours in our Christian life than with the usefulness that we have for the Spirit whilst in the detours. We're more so wondering, well, what is God's will for my life? What is going on? Hey, what's going on and what the will of God is for you is happening right in front of your face, right? There are things going on that God wants you to be a part of, that God wants you to be useful for. And by his spirit in you, you can be useful to those things. But still we are tempted in so many ways to disregard what is plainly before us. Why is that? Rather, how do I know if I am more preoccupied with the detours in my Christian life than with the usefulness of the Spirit? I think there might be three things from this passage that will help us. First of all, it may be that I'm possibly trying to squeeze God's Word to fit my own agenda. If you remember how David's story began here, he was told he was going to be king. Do you not think it would be tempting for him to consider, well, God wants me to be king, so that must be what he's doing right here. And and as he's there, you know, playing the lyre and being the armor bearer and all that stuff, how easy it would be to become preoccupied with, when am I going to be king, Lord, and miss completely what the Lord's calling him to in that moment. Secondly, it may be that the direction that the Spirit's leading me isn't what I want, so I won't move. I may become stagnant in either the development of my Christian character or the gifts that he's given me. It may be that I might just be standing there and saying, hey, I'm not moving until the path that I actually want opens up and becomes clear. Thirdly, it may be a matter of the outcome. Maybe it's the outcome wasn't what I knew it was going to be. I was so sure of it. Is it possible that I'm stuck in that introspection Or maybe stuck in what-ifs and if-onlys kinds of thoughts. Am I so stuck that I am now blinded to what God is actually doing right before my eyes? Well, it's very clear that David wasn't. But it may be possible that we are. How do we find our usefulness to God in this moment that we're in right now? We need to follow the Spirit unreservedly. Unreservedly meaning without adding on, hey, I'll follow you as long as you bring me in this direction or as long as you make sure to utilize this factor or as long as you secure this thing that I'm worried about. Well, if that's really the case, the truth is is that we can't follow the Spirit unreservedly on our own. We're in serious trouble. Recall again the difference between David and Saul with the Spirit. From that day forward, the Spirit was with David, but the Spirit has left Saul after only appearing in his life at different stages for different particular tasks. Saul had access to the Spirit only when the Spirit appeared, but David had the Spirit moment to moment. Remember, this is what the New Testament teaches us about the Christian life. We are called to be filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit in every moment. So why do we struggle to follow the Spirit? It can only be that we're discontent with the Spirit's will, with the Spirit's direction. And thus we create a sort of self, a self-created distance from the Spirit. Do you remember in Romans chapter 8? You might, you might like to turn there, in fact, for a moment. Romans chapter 8 is that big Holy Spirit chapter that's so helpful. I'll look at verses 7 and 8 here for a second. Wherein Paul, the apostle, teaches the church in Rome, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
See, that's the alternative. If we're not following the Spirit, we're only going to be in the flesh, and we're only going to be able to be a hostile to God, to His plan, and to His direction. Yet, in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 8 of Romans, Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, Christian, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Because of righteousness. The righteousness that Christ gives us. Because that lifestyle of living by the flesh and living in contrast to the Spirit constantly is unrighteousness. It is not living right with God. It is the opposite of that very thing. But if we are in Christ if we have put our faith in what He's done at the cross, such that He has paid for all of my sins and all of my wanderings from the Spirit, then I have every confidence that the Spirit of God is in me. And that I don't need to look for another ecstatic or emotional experience where the Spirit finally shows up, and now I have the Spirit. Because Paul teaches us in verse 9 that anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Christ. How can you be saved and not have the Spirit? It's impossible. So if you are in Christ, you have everything you need because you have the presence of God. And if you have everything you need in the presence of God in your heart, then you can be useful to God's plan. And you, in fact, not only can be useful, but you must be useful. It is within the new nature of the Christian to care for the plan of God, to move in the direction of what God is doing, and to be thus thus equipped to be useful for what God wants to do in their lives. Christ is in us. It's evidenced not by mighty deeds like Saul and David, but in the resurrection of Christ, and the fact that he is still alive today, and that if you know him today, you know him as the risen Savior the risen Christ, the risen anointed one, the true Christ who did the true work of God, the full work of God at the cross to pay for the sins of his people and to purchase eternal life for us. This is the greater proof. Sometimes we're tempted to follow the Spirit the way we turn on the lights in a dark room. We suddenly realize, oh wow, it's getting dark out. Let's turn the lights on. I'm not done with this task. But Really, the Christian life is meant to be lived with the light on constantly ever revealing the will of God step by step, moment by moment. Now it's fascinating that David had this rushing of the Spirit that, that uh, went with him from that moment on. Uh, we can go to all, forward into the New Testament to Luke chapter 1. We're told that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And that he grants to us in our new birth. He grants that in the moment of new birth, we are able to walk by the Spirit as we submit to His plan and not to our own. Maybe you're in a season of preparation for the next thing. Don't be preoccupied with the next thing. Maybe you're in a season of disappointment. Don't lose hope. You're useful to God because of what Christ has done. Instead of those things, release your agenda to the Lord. Follow Christ by His Spirit in you today. If you're in him, you are useful to him. And is there anything greater to desire than to be useful to the one who saved us? Let's bow our heads and pray together.
Father, this morning it is tempting for us perhaps to think that we are unequipped or that you have not moved in such a way that is satisfying to us or there's some kind of detour or roadblock. Lord, you have us where we are today in the situations of life that we face when we leave these doors so that we might be useful to your plan and not to our own. Lord, would you show us even by the failings of our own, our own plans the superiority of your plan, your purpose, your spirit, not our own power, not walking in the flesh, not walking as we used to before we knew Christ, but walking in the newness of life that we have because of his resurrection. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.